Hello and welcome to the Owen Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. Uh, my name is Peter Lawrence. I'm a senior associate at the London Serious Injury Team. I'll be your host today as we pedal into discussing Bike Week 2022. To do so, I'm delighted to welcome Andy Cox and Michael Gaffney. Andy needs no introduction, but is the Detective Chief Superintendent of Lincolnshire Police, but also the National Lead for Fatal Collision Investigation, reporting to the National Police Chiefs Council. Michael is the Police Chairman of Blue Light CC, and is a former roads policing officer, which also included work as a collision investigator. Together, we're going to discuss the dangers posed to cyclists on our roads, how we tackle them, cyclist safety on rural roads, and the recent highway code update, and the effect this has had on drivers' behaviour. Now, before we get into this, Andy, how are you feeling after your challenge? Yeah, thank you, Peter. Thank you so much for having us on. Um, the challenge has been, I'm feeling fine, first of all. I should try and lay this simply on, perhaps, but um, I actually feel okay. Um, but the challenge was you know, hugely successful, to be fair. So we obviously had two aims, one to raise awareness of road danger and uh, to try and change the fact five people every day still in the UK unfortunately die on average. Um, and two is to raise money for the charity Road Peace, who um, probably people are aware of, but are a, a charity that do so much good to support and bereave families. Um, and we've raised about £68,000, I think. So it's been, it's got a good profile, good amount of money raised, and hopefully will make a difference. I think there's a, a culture within driving, and this isn't every driver, of course, but there is a hardcore of drivers who have a view that, it, you know, it's an, uh, the fatal crash is inevitable. It's just one of those things. The start of five a day will never happen to me. Well, we've got to get about, we've got to travel. And actually, therefore, there's, you know, it's just one of those things. It can't be avoided. So one of the things we did on day one was to talk about the language we use. Um, so I'm anti the word accident because that implies exactly that. It's just one of those things. It's an accident. It was an inevitability. And I prefer the word crash or collision um, because actually, you know, there are ordinarily, this is about error and choice. So a driver who is selfish, who's prepared to take a reckless decision, who's prepared to be dangerous, is that is not an accident if they lead to a fatal crash. And that, as we know, is the vast majority of cases of fatal crashes, unfortunately. So I think by starting to talk about the, the language we use, changing that word accident to crash or collision actually might start a, a, a conversation, start thinking within society that says, actually, we, we can't accept amount of people that die. I mentioned five a day on average, but actually it's 24,000 a year left disabled as well. So there's a really widespread impact here through road danger. We do need to change the narrative and, and that starts with words. And absolutely, that 24,000 a year is a staggering number of people who suffered life-changing injuries and then the knock-on effects on their immediate families, friends, their work and their role in society. It has a huge cost to us all. It does. I mean, every fatal crash, um, we believe, costs the economy about 2.1 million uh, and um, every uh, life changing around £250,000. So just from a financial perspective, obviously, I'm here to really talk about the emotional impact, but financially as well, for the economy, the devastation it leaves um, people within and bereaved families have a lifelong sentence, essentially. So there is widespread impact here that isn't really understood. And there's so much we can do. I know we're we're touching that in due course, but so much we can do to change that. We, we should never accept the current statistics that are a devastating stain really on, on us as a country and the people that's left behind dealing with this as, as crash victims. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, Michael, turning to Blue Light CC, um, 
Now, say the club has made it's made a lot of noise in quite a short space of time. Could you talk us through the role of the club and its objectives? Yes, the club was set up um, on the 4th of May 2021 uh, by three serving officers, well, sorry, two serving officers, one retired officer from the Metropolitan Police um, and um, another uh, person called Dave Butch, who um, owns a company called Endurance Zone. Um, they set up the club um, to give a space, a safe space, um, and uh, a club where like-minded individuals from across all the emergency services, uh, including the military, uh, voluntary sector, uh, NHS, etc., could get together and uh, cycle. Uh, the main aim of the club is to promote well-being, uh, both mental and physical well-being, and to support local charities. Um, each year, we choose a charity representative of the police, the ambulance, um, the voluntary sectors, prison, coast guard, etc., um, and the military. Um, we do um, large cycle events to raise charity, but also uh, to improve um, road safety as well amongst the cyclists. We have a code of conduct that members have to adhere to when they sign up, and it's just basically to help um, our members with the stresses of, of working in the, the sector we do. Um, there is a lot of challenges. There's a lot of barriers to be broken down. And it was felt that by cycling with like-minded individuals, these barriers could be broken down and we could talk and, and support one another. And have you seen benefits in that respect already? Certainly have. Um, obviously, I'm based up in Scotland. Uh, we have a very regular membership up here of 23 members. We are out um, at least once a month uh, and the camaraderie that it's uh, brought together. Also, it's helped, um, like myself, being a police officer, out cycling with paramedics and fire uh, officers. Kind of the challenges are the same um, that we face emotionally um, and you get a different perspective uh, and a, a more of an understanding for how we can support one another. So we certainly have noticed a difference already. Yeah, some absolutely invaluable work. And it's it's great to see that being rolled out because I can say the challenges of that role and those roles generally are huge. So incredible work there. Now, I guess one of, the, one of the strange dichotomies we've got here is actually going out and cycling. It's great for physical and well mental well-being, but also it does pose dangers and sadly through our work at Owen Mitchell we do see lives change, lives shattered um, far too often as a result of road danger. Now how best do, do we tackle that? But I guess from your experiences both professionally and personally you've both got stories to share from anecdotally and professionally on how best we tackle road danger and how best we do improve cycling safety. What are the biggest dangers do you see, Mike, when your role the cyclists face? It's hard to pin down to one specific thing. I think uh, my own uh, opinion, respect for one another is, is quite a, a key thing. Um, there's quite a lot of um, frustration, understandably, when people are out driving and people drive for a variety of different reasons. Um, and it's being aware that everybody has to use the road, road network for different reasons. Um, some people be for business, some people be for pleasure, leisure, etc. And uh, in terms of danger, I think it's just observations, be, being aware of 
as a cyclist how vulnerable we are, uh, giving people the space and time uh, to pass them, etc. And as I say, ju just a general respect for one another um, when you're out there. Andy, is that something you'd share as well? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a, a complacency with with drivers who, um, and I, if I liken it to the cyclists, they they have this perception that they have an entitlement to pass. Um, so that entitlement essentially then, you know, whatever the scenario is, they will push by. Um, and so often um, their weight at the end of the road, either in red lights or junction, anywhere in the cyclists will catch them up, in, in particular places, city centres. Um, but I think taking a step back a little bit, I think it would be the most risky scenario to them is speeding. Um, so data would indicate speeding is by far the most prevalent contributory factor in fatal crashes present in about half of cases in London and more in Manchester since we've done a, uh, a essentially a new way of recording that, that data. And I think that might be replicated across the country. That's something we're looking at. But actually, so speeding is the number one cause to fatal crashes. That again goes back to complacency by drivers, this sort of view that there's an entitlement for them to drive however they wish, a disregard for the law. And ultimately, um, I think it comes back to drivers don't think anything will happen to them. So they think it's, yeah, they're perhaps better than other drivers, their skills are better than they actually are. And there's a complacency around what may or may not happen to them. Um, and that presents risk. And the kind of phrases I would use is, for example, if you were queuing in a cinema um, or in a shop, you're unlikely to push past somebody just because you feel entitled to be served first because you wait your place in that queue. And I think if people could take that mindset into their driving and understand the purpose of any journey ultimately is to go from A to B safely. But I think people forget and they try and shave sort of 30 seconds, a minute off their journey time. And in doing so, creates so much risk. And that would be one of the core reasons, unfortunately, that we have over 100 cyclists that died in the last recorded year. And obviously, you know, around five a day of all road death. So I think if we can stop being complacent, prioritise safety above our own personal need, then I think that will make a huge impact. We're going to come on to the highway code changes, but that's one of those things that is hugely frustrating from my perspective, as I see, you often see a lot of commentary on this online as well, about complaints about the now prescribed safe passing distances. And of course, people often say, well, in town centres especially, there's not enough space to do that. What should I do in that scenario? Well, of course, the answer there is to wait until it is safe to do so. But it is that entitlement there that perceives that, well, the safe passing distance is now prescribed. I'm not going to adhere to that because there isn't space to do so. Failing to realise the very objective of that prescribed safe distance is to ensure that cyclist safety. Because a momentary lapse of concentration by the driver in the two-ton piece of metal is going to have far greater catastrophic in impact than a cyclist is. And it just seems it is. It's the um, entitlement to move forwards and make progress in spite of often being caught up at the next junction of lights when the cyclist has made far more fluid, a more efficient journey through that town centre especially. In terms of your experience, Andy, I, I must admit I, was, I saw with quite some surprise the footage when you're out riding through central London. I think you're riding with Jeremy Vine and various other supporters of the challenge. And I was really struck by the HGV that did that incredibly close pass. And I thought it really struck me that in spite of the amount of people in high vis, which is something I don't necessarily condone as something that you should be required to do, um, it's certainly your choice to do so. But I just couldn't believe that in spite of the cameras visible, the police officers riding, the driver still felt it was appropriate to ride or rather drive in that manner. It was absolutely surprising. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know that the video you're referring to. Just, just firstly, dealing with the high, the high biz issue. Absolutely. I, I mean, there's a lot of evidence base that says, you know, whatever you're wearing is around the driver's attention, their focus, their their habits, their behaviour. Um, so I really do not subscribe in any way to to requiring high vis. That that ultimately for me is basically victim blaming. Um, you know, if it, if and I draw a comparison to that. So if a um, a female was, you know, unfortunately sexually assaulted, and um, we wouldn't, as a police service, for example, talk about well, a female should not have worn this type of clothing. And I only draw that as a comparison around. Sometimes we blame the victim. We don't focus on the offender because in that sexual assault case, we clearly should only focus on the perpetrator. They're solely to blame. It's the same with dangerous and reckless drivers. It's the way they drive. It's their concentration. It's the speed they're at. It's that their activities and behaviours. So I very much focus solely on, on that aspect. I think in that particular case, it is interesting and revealing um, that you know we have, um, and perhaps it goes to that point. We have a whole wide range of um, officers and cyc other cyclists as well. Because the challenge obviously included voluntary members. The Blue Light Club um, were there um, and. On obviously a number of police officers, including myself, and the uh, the lorry still drove, decided to to go past. And I just hope that sends out some form of message. That video that Jeremy Vines tweeted, I think, had around about a million views on all forms of social media, um, and it's got a very mixed comment. Um, and I really, yeah. really hope that um, it raises a discussion and makes people think about well, actually. Where was that lorry? Why did that lorry have to force its way through? Why could it not have just waited and made sure that everybody was going to be okay? It's almost like drive, you know, the concept of driving like you know somebody, I think is a really important um, concept to develop. And I think ultimately, um, when we start to treat that person or that, you know, cyclist or that vehicle in front line, well, that's somebody we care about. Ultimately, we might have a different standard and culture drive. Yeah, absolutely. We read with interest about the changes to the reporting surrounding the contributory factors for collisions. And are you able to summarise that? Yeah, certainly. So um, previously, we we recorded um, contributory factors and fatal crashes um, based on the first officer assessment. Um, and of course, that puts that individual in a really quite difficult position on occasion. So. Um, in London, we tried something different. In Manchester, they tried something different, and this would make perfect sense. And I think, and, and be clearly, you know, clear professional judgment would suggest that this is the way to do it. You wait to the last point to make that contributory factor assessment, because what that does is that brings in all the specialists, all the complex investigation we've done, all the experts we've used, and we've looked at every aspect of a fatal crash by then. So when you're at the end point, you're clearly going to have a more informed position of what the contributory factors are, and then of course your data. From there will be more appropriate and i think we need to be really intelligence led in our data because i'm a huge believer that we need to identify where when why basically and who so once you understand that you'll prioritize which roads you're tackling and when you'll prioritize what key themes you're tackling and clearly from the review that we've done speeding is by far the most prevalent contributing factor present as i said in london in one and two instead of one in six um present in manchester in over 80% of cases rather than in around a third. So you can see significant uplift of around three to four times more um, prevalence to speeding. So therefore that gives us greater legitimacy to target it. So the public perhaps instead of seeing speed enforcement as why are the police doing that, you know, what there's better things than to do, we clearly see the link to saving life. Um, and also then by targeting the right road, the right issue, 
and the right FEMA, basically, and including the driver, it gives us a greater chance to have all the right interventions from a police enforcement perspective, but also to initiate all of our, you know, through collaboration, key agency support as well to tackle areas and issues and themes so we can start to get, you know, safer roads and reduce danger on the road. So this is very much around um, having really informed, accurate data in the areas that matter most, so fatal crashes. So we haven't been able to solve everything with that system because it's a really without getting too detailed, a really intensive process to review. But um, just by solving the fatal crashes, that's clearly where we need to start. And hopefully it's a really positive step forward in terms of understanding the causes more more readily. Yeah, I agree entirely there, because I think we often see it through the nature of our work where we will see the initial police reports post-accident. We're dealing with that initial aftermath of the collision. We're working with insurance companies and trying to get access to funds to support our clients in accessing early re rehabilitation where the greatest work can be put in place. And the challenge often though is the initial reports can be quite conservative and can not necessarily reflect what the end of the investigation reveals. And Michael, I don't know if that's something from your work as a former collision investigator yourself, that's something you've seen in terms of those challenges and seeing those initial reports and then your subsequent reports revealing something else entirely. Uh, yeah, that's certainly something I have seen uh, in my line as a forensic collision investigator. Um, uh, we are taught and acutely aware of something called witness rationalisation, where an involved party um, may be involved in a traumatic event. Uh, they will be aware of A and they'll be aware of C, but their mind, through no fault of their own, um, will create a narrative as B. So when we arrive at uh, the scene of a collision, we don't take into consideration any witness statements. Uh, we rely solely on physical evidence to carry out investigations, um, calculations, etc. And uh, it has been a few times that I've attended that investigations whereby the initial thought from the senior investigating officer is party A or factor A was to blame. Uh, and through our own investigations, it's actually party B that's uh, at fault. Um, just to very quickly give you an example of one, um, I attended a fatal accident whereby the driver had blamed aquaplaning due to the weather conditions. And on the face of it, um, it appeared very legitimate. They went out for an overtake. They returned, hit standing water, lost control and collided with a vehicle coming the other way. Um, however, through my investigation uh, and my calculations, I could prove that the driver hadn't taken into consideration um, the road weather conditions. Uh, he was actually speeding at the time um, and we were able to um, get a conviction out of it. Um, as we're on the face of it, when you first arrived, it appeared the poor person had, through no fault of you, had hit standing water and crashed. Uh, so yes, it's certainly something we see a lot of. And I guess ultimately the challenge then for you guys, for both of you ultimately and forces across the country is that in terms of resourcing, the ability to have full collision reports, I guess ultimately is limited. We're seeing from our caseloads, we're seeing fewer and fewer of them available to us. And so more often than not, we're seeing, we're having to rely on the basic initial report and not having the full assessment done, which is then often far more valuable. And in spite of the fact, often you're seeing photos haven't been taken, there's been scans done at the collision location, but then nothing's actually been prepared off the back of that. And I guess that just reflects resourcing issues and that fatal incidents quite rightly taking priority, but does also then lead challenges where those who have suffered life-changing injuries 
left often without any real recompense from a punitive basis targeting the driver whilst we're looking at a claim trying to support our clients, they may not have had any satisfaction down the criminal proceedings route where they see the police let's take no further action. And to what degree is, is, is that limited by the lack of resources? I don't know. Is that something you're able to comment upon? Yeah, I, w- I would say it certainly is. Um, I know I can only obviously speak for Police Scotland. Um, crash investigation work is only undertaken um, where there is a threat to life. Um, if there is no threat to life, um, then there is no collision investigation work carried out uh, in terms of a report. As you say, there, there would be scans, um, there would be photographs taken. Um, I know recently, um, or fairly recently, I should say, Police Scotland got rid of its um, dedicated collision investigation team. Um, so the officers are now dual role road patrol officers and then called upon uh, when they need to. Um, so yes, it's certainly something we've noticed in Scotland as the road deaths increase. Um, that potentially they need to re-look at that, um, putting more resources into this uh, so that victims do get the uh, answers that they require. And I guess this now comes down to, I guess your role is made significantly easier but there's a greater prevalence of dash cams where you are going to get better access to footage, which at least does then enable you guys to make better decisions on the CPS in turn, whether to prosecute drivers. I guess having that event, that data available to you is probably invaluable. It certainly is. Um, again, the the processes are very different, I believe, between Scotland and England. Um, up in Scotland, believe it or not, it's the officers that decide whether or not to put a report through to the procurator fiscal, we would call it up here. Um, so in terms of, if it, unless it's a serious uh, collision or a fatal collision, the decision to prosecute is actually rests with the officers that attended the scene. Um, so we collate all the data, uh, we give an opinion as to whether or not we believe there's blame, and we submit the report to the Procurator Fiscal. Um, and usually the Procurator Fiscal will take proceedings based on our advice. Um, for serious and fatal collisions, it is a bit different. Um, there will be an investigation by Crown Office. Um, but yeah, Dashcam is playing a massive role um, in especially uh, what we classify single uh, casualty collisions where we would turn up to an incident where someone has sadly lost a life and there may be no witnesses at all. Um, and Dashcam provides an invaluable um, tool to that. And also people who are maybe not always willing to admit what they've done. Um, it, it's a great tool and I personally would um, look for it to be rolled out on all vehicles. In some ways, I guess the challenge going forwards then is how do we ensure greater compliance and being seen to be moderated by the presence of cameras. Of course, you have cyclists in London with helmet cameras, some of which become quite notable um, in terms of capturing drivers who've been using their mobile phones whilst at the wheel. Um, And of course, we always see drivers slowing down in the presence of speed cameras or police cars. Now, is it felt that perhaps having a greater prevalence of cameras out on the roads with basically empowering the public, do you think that in terms will moderate drivers' behaviour? What do you think, Andy? Yeah, most definitely. So I'm a a huge fan of um, what what I refer to as public reporting road crime. Um, So, you know, I think previously, um, 
drivers look for police officers, they look for speed cameras. If they saw neither, they're much more inclined to drive dangerously and recklessly. Um, now they know they have to look for everybody. So we essentially made this, we tried to remove the postcode lottery of dash cam and head cam referrals. And so we appreciate that some force areas do it better than others. We put out national guidance. Um, I'm confident we made a huge amount of progress in terms of policing service to receive that, understand why we want to receive it and the benefits that it gives us and the opportunities it gives us to tackle tackle drivers who are, who are breaking the law. Um, you know, and, and the way I look at it, we've empowered 66 million people um, or whatever the population is now um, countrywide to be part of road danger solutions. Um, the police can't be everywhere all the time, but the, the public can be. So I see very much deterrent is number one benefit of this and a bit of a game changer, to be fair, in terms of culture and behaviour. I think once everybody's aware, once everybody's using it, once it's fully marketed everywhere, then I think it will have a real deterrent impact. But also, as Michael's alluded to, this crash investigation benefit as well. So we have solved cases through it. We have helped victims understand what's happened to them or their loved ones through it as well, which can be really important in terms of criminal justice outcome. Um, so definite deterrence benefit, definite investigative benefit as well. And we, we, we enforce, just to put into context, we enforce around about two thirds of the, the footage that's referred to us. Um, which is pretty pretty remarkable, uh, to be honest. So it shows there's, and it's a, a hugely increasing demand. Um, but as I say, so policing has to understand that and the criminal justice system has to understand there's a, a real demand for this. But it is about saving life. So there's we've got to resource it. So we recognise that demand's increasing. But actually it's really efficient as well because our roads, I believe, in time, we have task evaluations. So I'm working with a university called Keele at the moment to, to look at a really thorough um, evaluation of the whole benefits that this give us. Um, and I think in time, it will definitely be seen to reduce road danger. It will definitely be one of the primary benefits that will hopefully will save life. So there's a huge benefit for policing to do it in terms of their strategy of saving life, but also its efficiency of resource. And as, as alluded to by Michael, I think when um, dash camps fitted as standard by manufacturers, when headcams more widely used by cyclists and horse riders and everybody, to be honest, um, there's a real benefit there. And it's not a, a human rights issue. This is, yeah, we for any other crime type, we encourage the public to tell us stuff. So if you're burgled, if you're assaulted, if you're subject to criminal damage, whatever it may be, we ask for you to send us your CCTV footage and we do witness trials and everything else. This is about moving that agenda into road crime and having people refer footage to us, much in the same way they do the other crime, that actually is for a subject that kills more people than murder and terrorism combined every year. So there's a need for it and, and we are willing to accept it and we are acting on it as a police service. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we did some work, we did a survey with YouGov a while back and it was fascinating to see the real challenges with encouraging people to cycle is the perception of feeling safe on our roads. It's the one, it's being segregated from traffic, but if that's not possible, just the volume of traffic and being safe around it. And so it's, again, it's it's a shame to see that anecdotally, I'm aware of plenty of people where they feel far safer when they've got a little badge on the back of their bicycle indicating that they've got a camera running. And the moment they've got that, they find the driver's behaving around them is far more appropriate. They're getting passed far more safely. Yet without that, drivers carry on regardless. And I say I'm saying drivers is an all-encompassing term, but that's the nature of where you do see a lot of drivers. They will pass far too closely when they don't see that that little badge 
he is present and it's something you see far too often. Yeah. What more can be done? And just coming on to, say, rural roads, because um, there's also the greater challenge there. We see more work being done in our town centres. We're getting cycle lanes established, which are segregated from the traffic. But we see that danger on the on the roads is more profound on rural roads. We saw more deaths per mile on rural roads than we do our town centres. Now, of course, speed, as we've alluded to already, is a key component here. But what more can be done on these sort of roads where they're not necessarily going to be lit? Uh, the road surfaces might not be as well looked after. Um, the roads might be winding with blind bends, brows. Really, what more can be done to ensure cyclist safety in those environments? So for country roads, I live relatively rural. Uh, and I would say 90% of my daily cycles is on uh, country roads, national roads. And um, the key thing for me is to hammer home to drivers' anticipation. Um, you may have driven that road a hundred times. You may think you know what's around the corner, but it's that one time where you don't concentrate, you are blasé, and there may be a cyclist, there may be a hazard, um, there may be something that you haven't anticipated. Um, that causes a collision. Um, and for cyclists as well, I, I am relatively confident um, out on country roads, but it's to present yourself to show other road users that you are here um, because um, it tends to be, or I have found, that if, if I'm forced to cycle into the side of the road, it tends to, drivers tend to think, well, that's during their queue to pass me, but it may not be safe. Um, so yeah, it, it's basically making sure that drivers are aware of the dangers could be there um, and to make cyclists more comfortable and to present themselves when they're on the country roads. Thank you, Michael. Andy, do you have anything to add to that? I think um, a lot's just been covered there, to be fair. I, I would add, um, obviously, a huge amount around where we might go with technology around speed limiters. Um, there's no doubt speed on rural roads is the biggest single uh, contributory factor uh, to, to fatal crashes in, in rural communities. Um, so having that um, yeah, manufacturer-led, GPS-tagged sort of speed technology that restricts you to, to the limit, I really have a frustration that we have you know, cars that have substantial power beyond beyond the speed limit, to, uh, the speed limit and substantial capability beyond the speed limit. But also things like in the future, um, there is some evidence base from overseas where things like graduated driving licenses have a real impact as well. Um, so elsewhere, Australia, I believe some European countries have got for, for you know, new drivers, for young drivers, certain restrictions around when they can drive. Um, there's insurance incentivized policies. There's essentially black box data trackers that kind of influence the way people drive as well. So I think there's a, a combination of factors from speed to legislative opportunity around new and young drivers, and then to insurance incentivized safe driving, essentially that can play a really significant part here in, a, in addition to what Michael said. Yeah, I think I'm interested in the use of technology here. I saw um, Garmin have just launched a new um, rear light that then connects to the head unit you have on your bicycle. It's quite interesting that will then detect if a car is approaching from behind to alert the rider and also for warns of the driver's approach speed as well. And so it could just gives the cyclists a degree of warning, might prompt them to, whilst they shouldn't be required to, but just put them on notice that someone is approaching and perhaps position themselves accordingly and just be mindful of that vehicle approaching. Again, it's it's putting the onus on the wrong person here ultimately, but it's 
it's a technological step that I'm sure could also be reverse engineered to put the driver on greater notice if for whatever reason they are distracted momentarily, that they are aware of that yeah, person. And I, think, and I think technology, there's technology, there's so many technological developments that have obviously come in, but was far greater opportunity for us, for, for everybody involved, every road user involved to help reduce that danger, particularly let's say around obviously motor vehicles and how we might influence that. But I also think with active travel now, which is obviously, we know active travel has so many benefits first in terms of health, mental health, environment, congestion, air pollution, finances, look at the cost of living at the moment, price of fuel, et cetera. And active travel is clearly a significant um, agenda that's being driven forward across across the country. And I think, you know, I saw a statistic recently, it said active travel extends your life by seven years, which is amazing. So policing itself has to recognise that's the direction we're moving in. Um, and therefore, you know, pedestrians and cyclists, we have to have our strategies ready to help support that movement. Um, and also, obviously, in terms of legislative changes as well. So there needs to be yeah, a number of factors. And I'm really encouraged by the, the new highway code, which is, I think, done a great deal Great service, really, for for cyclists in particular, with that 1.5 metre clarity around safe paths, with the prioritisation of hierarchy that it's got as well. So I think there's been, and I know there's a campaign that's going to be launched imminently to try and ramp up understanding through marketing um, and really hide sort of prime time and and sort of national mainstream media marketing. Um, so that would be really positive. Um, but I think fundamentally, there's um, still a responsibility on everybody involved, so that's your manufacturer, your insurer, your driver, you know, everything to, to make cycling safe. But I think there has been, as I said, substantial movements to try and encourage cycling, try and encourage pedestrians and policing has to be part of that movement because to have active travel, effective, uh, sorry, effective active travel, you have to have effective road danger reduction strategies as well. The two go hand in hand to give the cyclist, to give that pedestrian confidence to be an active traveller. So recognising that's there, we need to really react to that now and be ready over the next few years to, to really deliver for them. Yeah, I was interested in knowing from your experiences, both of you um, ultimately, is have you seen any changes in driver behaviour um, from your work since the changes were implemented? I know I, think I went out the first morning when they were in force and I didn't see a great deal of change. And certainly since then, I haven't seen a great deal of change from my riding around. But I don't know if that's something you've seen from your work, where there's been a change in attitudes and enforcements. It has. Perhaps if I just touch on just what I've experienced around the challenge. So, um, you know, there were some places where clearly there's work to do. Um, definitely. There are some places that were much stronger. Um, but what certainly what I believe in speaking to people, so this is reasonably new still so it's reasonably anecdotal it's not hugely evidence-based at this time and we definitely need to work from an evidence base so i'm sure there'll be evaluations ongoing and over time we really understand where there's benefit here but anecdotally it does feel like the 1.5 meter um pass reference in the highway code and the hierarchy of road user has had a positive impact it's made people think it's given some clarity people more people do recognize it now and certainly i experienced some you know really really good driving standards during my, my, my cycle across the countryside you know really wide passes stopping for us to allow us to to, to get through you know really safe passing um obviously unfortunately that's not everybody um and therefore you know we sometimes i get nervous we tired but it was same brush a lot there's a lot of safe sensible lawful drivers out there 
but it's the, the ones that don't quite get with it yet and don't quite recognise it who are presenting the risks. So I think it definitely was a move in the right direction. But obviously all the marketing that's planned, I think there's things we can do with legislation. There's a huge amount more we can do to really fine-tune that. So we really, really deliver much better danger reduction on our roads and ultimately yeah, don't see the fatality rates we are. Would you endorse the need for sort of mandatory retesting or at least of the, of the theory test to ensure familiarity with the highway code? Because I guess that's a challenge where, frankly, unless you're a lawyer or a policeman, you're not likely to be rereading the highway code a great deal over your lifetime. And I guess that's one of the challenges that that's faced. Yeah, no, I, I definitely um, I'm aware of the, the point that somebody might pass their test at, at 17 and then you know, continue to drive throughout their life, essentially. And I think it doesn't feel particularly risk-based to me. I mean, any other walk of life, you go through reaccreditation processes, you constantly have continuous professional development in, in the workplace. Um, and I am, yeah, concerned by the large gap um, people have in their driving testing and, and the highway code refresher and, and so on. And I think there is something to be said for that. I understand logistically that's really difficult. Um, we've got see millions of drivers and it needs to be understood and unpicked. Um, so what I, what I would welcome is a review that's really inclusive of um, how could it be achieved? What are the risks by not doing something around refresher testing and, and highway code refresher and so on? Um, what could be the process and how do we really deliver that in a um, logistically proportionate, sensible manner? Um, but the risk of not doing anything is, you know, we said earlier, 2.1 million to the economy for every fatality, 250,000 for every person that's injured. So from a financial perspective, there's a risk but obviously fundamentally from the emotional impact to people that leaves them with lifelong devastation on both sides of that crash. So often the driver that's at fault has lifelong impact, of course, as well. So there's there's a huge amount of proportionate rationale, I think, to do something, but I recognise it's not easy. But to leave it, um, it needs to be fully reviewed and some form of um, you know, communicated rationale for why we currently have the status quo, which to me seems... Um, not not a sensible, um, sustainable approach. Although, frankly, some of these changes to the highway code, they do frankly reflect common courtesy uh, for road users. And actually, a lot of the changes there, by rights, shouldn't be that controversial. It should just be a fact that the matter that you should pass someone safely. You should give way to the more vulnerable road users and ensure they've got ample space to continue their journey without the fear of being flattened by an HGV or being close past by something. It's just codifying that common courtesy that we should give each other mutual respect on our roads ultimately. And that even in the absence of retesting, you'd hope that would take priority. Yeah, I completely agree with uh, everything Andy says. I think um, there's a culture out there, uh, a certain hardcore um, culture whereby it's my right to go from A to B uh, and I'm the most important person in the world. And since the changes, I have noticed slight slight improvements, especially with the 1.5 metre um, passing. I think that it gives somebody a, a, an actual visual representation of, right, this is too close, this is fine, as opposed to leaving it up to each individual person. Um, but yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, um, it is common courtesy. Um, but to codify it and to put it in black and white, I think would give or hopefully will give 
uh, more people a little bit a nudge. Um, this is a responsibility you have uh, as defined in an official documentation, um, as opposed to uh, just a kind of unwritten rule that this is how things should be. No, absolutely. No, thank you for that. So that's it for today. Thank you to Andy and Michael for their time and their valuable expertise and insights from their roles. And thank you for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please do join us for our next episode. Stay safe.